Originally, wedding cake wasn't eaten by the bride and groom. What was it used for? And what continent is bigger than the moon? Hmm. Wow. Never I never thought, thought of, of that. No, I know. Okay. Answers to those and other big questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, the chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on the Earth? (laughs) Okay. Wow, so there is a continent on the Earth that is bigger than the moon. Correct. In terms of surface. Yeah. Well, it would have to be, hmm, either Africa or Asia. So I'll say Africa. Africa. No. Oh. Oh. oh, gee. The moon isn't as big as it looks, Bob. It's around 27% of the size of Earth, and it has 14.6 million square miles of surface area. Okay. All right. And although that seems like a lot, it is significantly less than the total surface of Asia. Wow. Which is 17.2 million square miles, making Earth's biggest continent Larger than the moon. Larger than the surface area of the moon. Mm -hmm. Wow, that is different perspective. 14, 15, so that's 3 million square miles bigger. Wow, Asia has more surface area than the moon. That's pretty impressive. Okay, this is impressive too, Marcia, (laughs) in its own way. The wedding cake? Yes. I never had a wedding cake. Oh, here we go again. (laughs) Did you have one? Originally... In my first marriage, oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> She got the cake. Here you. we go. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All these things at the time you talk them through and they're fine. Yeah, we're going to elope. That's just fine with me, Bob. But where's the cake? Where's the gifts? Oh, Lord. Okay. Originally, wedding cake wasn't eaten by the bride and groom. What was it used for? Well, was it this just... This goes back to Roman times. Roman. Oh, those Romans, those... Was it just to feed the guests or the family? How about the family, the bride and groom's family, because uh, to just shut them up during the ceremony, just give them cake? (laughs) No. Okay, tell me. I love that. No, no. (laughs) Originally, wedding cake was broken over the bride's head. Oh, no. Really? (laughs) Yes. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Ancient Rome, when marriage ceremonies ended with a scone-like wheat or barley cake broken over the bride's head for luck and fertility. Oh, wow. Still sounds condescending, doesn't it? Yeah, it uh, does. So the guy had nothing, huh? Well, the new husband and wife might eat some crumbs together as one of the first unified acts as a married couple. He licked the frosting off her face? It wasn't frosting. It was like a scone, you know, a scone, a wheat or barley cake broken over the bride's head. And then that kept changing as times went on. So the Romans brought their cake-breaking wedding tradition with them when they came to Britain. That was in 43 A.D., but the Brits, they decided to throw bread at the bride to show her fertility. Throw bread at throw her. Throw bread at the bride. In medieval days, the English started stacking spiced buns, scones, and cookies as high as possible, like tiered wedding cakes. Yeah. And the bride and groom would try to kiss over it. And if they smooched successfully without tipping it over, they'd have good fortune. Well, crazy tradition. Here's the first recipe for a wedding cake. 1685. Bride's pie. It included pastry crust filled with oysters, lamb testicles, Ah! 
a thyroid, <laughs> ro- a rooster comb, and pine kernels. Oh, God, that sounds delicious, God. doesn't no, it? No buttercream? Just okay. <laughs> All right. And they thought that eating the pie ensured the couple would have a happy life. Well, if nothing else, it certainly would be vomitous. Guess why single women would definitely want to eat that pie? For fertility? Because it had a ring in it somewhere. Did it really? And that's how they determined who was going to get the next man. Really? Yeah. Whoever got that ring in the cake, that was going to be the next so bride. So that was the early bouquet throwing. Yeah. So those are the early traditions about wow. wedding cake. You know, let's just crack that wedding cake over the bride's head and get this <laughs> wedding over with. Jeez. It just sounds cruel, doesn't it? Even though she's smiling, <laughs> standing there with crumbs oh, on her hair. And look at Gladys over there, trying to rip through that cake, looking for a ring. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that is very, very funny, Bob. Well, my next question is about SpaghettiOs, Marsha. Oh, there you go. Remember SpaghettiOs as a kid? Did you I ever w- eat those? No. Okay. How many O's are in a can of SpaghettiOs, Oh, let me, 133. Well, that's pretty nothing. You have a whole can full of broth with 133 O's? Well, they're pretty big, aren't they? No, they're not that big. Oh, I never They're like tiny Oreos. Okay, then let me get... they're made out of spaghetti. 607. No. How many? 1,750 O's in every can of SpaghettiOs. No, I don't believe that. That's an important thing to... How big is that I have a hard time believing that too, but according to the book, who knew? The makers of that product say there are approximately 1,750 O's in every can of SpaghettiOs. I don't believe that. Well, they have to be really tiny. I want you to buy a can and count them and tell me (laughs) if it's true. I have more food questions coming up. Okay, good. I like food questions. So how long do you think it takes a rocket and the launch tower to travel the four miles between the NASA assembly plant and the launch pad? Doesn't it take like two days to get there? No. What? Two hours? No. How long? Over 10 hours. 10 hours. Significantly less than one mile an hour. 10 hours. Over 10 hours to get that four miles. <laughs> it's got huge uh, crawler. You've seen the pictures yeah, of it moving. Yeah. And that's what it's called, the crawler. Okay. Very apt. A food-oriented question for you, Marcia, and about one of your favorite subjects. Subjects. <laughs> wine. <laughs> Excuse me. Did I, did I slur that? <laughs> what do wine bottles and rifles have in common? Well, there you go. Wine bottles and rifles have something in common. They're both made from, uh, parts of them are both, uh, well, the cork and the shaft of the rifle are made from barrels. What do you put in a rifle? Lead. Bullets. You put bullets in a rifle. You put a cork in the wine bottle. Guess what? The design for the first corkscrew was inspired by a rifle tool called a gunworm. Now, a gunworm was a screw-like device used to extract bullets when they got stuck in a rifle. Well, see, that's not that's not a, the way you phrase that question. Is I said, fair. what do wine bottles and rifles have in common? It's more like that's what they have in common. They have a screw-like tool to remove obstructions in common. <laughs> There's it's so many very, things I could say to them. Very simple, Marsha. <laughs> All right. Okay. Ready? Mm-hmm. Have you ever looked at your zipper, Bob? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I've looked at several of them. Have you seen the letters on them? Z- Y-M-K. Y-K-K. Y-K-K. You have looked at your zipper. I know the answer to this. All right. It's the Yokohama something oh something God. company, right? It's Just, a company that makes zippers. That is correct. It's actually Yoshida Kagyo Kababushiki Kikasha. What? Yes. And that's why the guy changed it to uh, YKK. Say it again. Yoshida Kagyo 
Kabushki Kika Kaishia. Kabushki. K B U S H K I K A I S H A. Okay. Anyway, so in 1994, he changed it to just YKK. The privately held company is headquartered in Japan, but it has 106 companies around the world, including Macon, Georgia, which is the largest zipper company in the world. And they produce more than five million zippers a day just by themselves. Wow. How do you, five million, all in all different colors and I sizes? I had no idea you needed that many yep. zippers. Now, YKK, and I went into our closet to prove this was true, <laughs> <laughs> is considered an upper tiered zipper and is a staple on higher end products that need a quality zipper. Okay. So I did. I went in, and our good jackets all have YKK on the zipper. Very good. But our cheaper sweatshirts, not so much. Oh, it's, that's it's too bad. It's some weird little thing on our, those zippers. <laughs> <laughs> some weird little thing. Yeah, it is. I love it. Okay, I, there's your zipper update for today. All right. Well, that was fast, <laughs> as a zip should be. Yeah. This is about a beverage. What contribution did the University of Florida make to sports training? Was that the uh, Gatorade thing? The Gatorade, that's right, yeah. Robert Cade, a University of Florida physiology professor. Uh -huh. He developed the sports drink to replace bodily fluids lost to physical exertion. He tested the drink on 10 of his school's players. That year, the team, the Gators, posted a winning record. And as a result, people started calling it Gatorade. And oh. later they, they patented it and trademarked it. I'll be darned. All right. Here's the presidential question. I know you love your presidents. When President Thomas Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark out west to explore, he told them to watch out for what animal? Watch out for what animal? It was some kind of big exotic animal, wasn't it? Was it some kind of Bigfoot kind of thing? Was it that some kind of mythical beast? Is that what it was? Well, it was an actual beast, but it was uh, extinct about 10,000 years before. Dinosaurs. It was a mammoth. Okay. He was obsessed most of his life and was convinced that mammoths still roamed the American West. Not always the sharpest. Well, <laughs> well if uh, you get out of your area of expertise, yes, you make statements like that's that. That's true, because you're the smartest guy in the room, right? Yeah. Mammoths were more correctly called American mastodons, mm -hmm. and they went extinct at the end of the Ice Age around 10,000 years ago. Watch out for the mammoths. <laughs> Can you imagine That's Lewis your, and Clark going, you know, uh, yeah, okay, yes, sir. Tom. We'll be there, sir. Good. Yeah. <laughs> all right. You walk into Starbucks. Yeah. You have all types of different sizes of drinks. You have different types of syrups. You have different types of shots, hot and cold yeah. drinks. Yep. What, how many different combinations are, are there? possible oh. at a Starbucks store? I'll just say uh, 328. It's a lot more than that, believe oh. it or not. Oh. This is another one of those, really? <laughs> An unbelievable 87,000 possible drink combinations. How many? 87,000. Well, that's... Now, that's when you factor in all the sizes, the shots, the syrups, the hot, cold, wet, dry, and blended drinks. You should know the first part of this question, Bob. What is QWERTY? K-W-E-R-T-Y. What is QWERTY? Uh-huh. Um, you know this. I... I know I'm seeing this in my head, the words. Q... Oh, it's about the uh, keyboard of a Correct. typewriter. Correct. And it is what? It's the keys that are on the top row, QWERTY. That's, that's correct. But why was it created? 
Originally, they had it in alphabetical order, but the keys, they were all mechanical, and they would bang into each other as you typed. So this was the combination of keys that would, would not bang into each other. Very good. So this dude invented it to slow down typewriter jams. Christopher Latham Scholes. Scholes, yes, famous name in typewriting history, Marcia. Yeah, the S and the T were the most common combinations, and they were forever getting stuck because they were right next to each other. So... That's what he figured out. He was the newspaper editor in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He came up with the QWERTY, and it's still used today, even though we don't need it on the computer keyboards, but we all learned to type that way, so there you go. All right, Marcia, I have a couple of questions on national parks. We'll get to those in just a moment. Okay. We're, we're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. Marcia? Bob? Marcia? Can, can you say it a little louder? <laughs> say it loud and proud. And Marcia. Smith. There we go. We'll be back. Okay, we're back, and Marsha, I have questions on what is the most remote American national park? This is the farthest park away to travel to get to. It's it on, I'll give you a clue. Oh, oh, thank you. It's the only U.S. national park south of the equator. Did you know there was a national park south of the equator? Is it in Hawaii? No, Hawaii's not south of the equator. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, tell me. It's the National Park of American Samoa. Uh, Samoa, of course. Now, where is that located? That's midway between Hawaii and New Zealand in yeah. the South Pacific. It's 4,768 miles from Los Angeles, so it's almost twice as far as Honolulu. Yeah. It's literally on the other side of the earth from the rest of the United States. 13,500 acres of land and sea spreads across three islands. You know, can walk on trails or you can scuba dive. And yeah. you can swim with turtles and octopuses. And there's a volcano nearby. Gosh. My first roommate and dear girlfriend at the time, uh, she lived there for years. When she came back to the U.S., uh, she moved in with me. <laughs> she lived in Samoa? Yeah, Linda. Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. All right. Now you know where the farthest national park is. How many acres is the largest American national park? Here's my hint. It's in Alaska. Oh, okay. Is that Denali? No, it's State not. That's park? number three, actually. Oh, okay. I don't know. I haven't been there. Our largest national park, and let me tell you how large it is. It's larger than Yellowstone National Park, Yosemite National wow. Park, and the country of Switzerland oh. <laughs> combined. <laughs> Throw in a country. That is amazing. Well, it that's... is the Wrangell St. Elias National Park and Preserve, 13.2 million oh, my God. acres, that's... including an 18,000-foot mountain St. Elias. That's huge. Now, the top five national parks in the United States in terms of size, they're all in Alaska. Yeah. You've got that one, Wrangell, St. Elias, 13.2 million acres. The Gates of the Arctic National Park, 8.5 million acres. Denali, 6 million acres. And then there's two more, Katmai National Park and Preserve, 4.3 million acres, and Glacier National Park with 3.3 million acres. Well, because of that, that's why uh, Alaska will be around for a while in its present form because it's all parks now. That's amazing. It is. Okay, Bob, how did the Incas deliver their mail? They had runners from one city to another, and they ran on these great highways they built. Why do I even try? I'll, I'll let me just pretend like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Well, you were right. It was a relay system. And they could go 150 miles a day to deliver a message wow. via their carriers. Uh, each one would run about six to nine miles and then hand it off to someone else in a little house. 
who was waiting for them. But they didn't have a written word. So what were they delivering, you ask? Well, what were they delivering? (laughs) So you don't know everything, smarty pants. They had no written language, and each messenger carried a unique type of Andean textile some kind of cloth that uses a system of knots to record data and information. Oh. And although they never had access to the wheel, they had a vast network of roads that went over 25,000 miles. And these guys would, you know, run all these different roads and uh, 25,000 miles of road. That rivaled the Roman roads in terms of size. Amazing. All right, Marcia, think of cookies. Cookies, cookies, I do. cookies. I think about it's Girl Scout time pretty soon. Or All it right. Is now. Two of the three most delicious cookies in the United States are Oreos and Chips Ahoy. Okay? Ah. Now, what's also on this list of the top three best cookies? There's Chips Ahoy and Oreos. What's the third one? Chocolate chip. You mentioned the organization just a moment ago Girl Scouts. Ah. It's Girl Scouts Thin Mints. That's number three. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. It's amazing when you think about them. They rank third behind Oreos and Chips Ahoy's, which have much larger businesses behind them. But still, Girl Scout Thin Mints are the number three most delicious cookies, according to most people. Those are good. Of those three, that's the only one I like. What famous food business duo got their start thanks to a Penn State University correspondence course? These are two names that are well-known in food. In food. Uh, Roughly food. Roughly food. Something to consume, but not necessarily. Well, now you got me. What are you talking about? It's a treat. It's a treat. Hershey's Bar. No, that's not. Two names. Two names. Two guys. Yeah. Is this a treat or a food? It's a treat. A treat, I said. Oh, okay. Uh, Ben and Jerry. Ben and Jerry, yes. The ice cream guys. Do you know what they originally wanted to go into? What business? They wanted to go into the bagel business. Really? That was their idea originally. Ben and Jerry's bagels. Could have been like Einstein bagels or something. Yeah, yeah. But they discovered the bagel equipment alone at the time would cost them $40,000. Oh, and cream they was didn't cheaper. have that money. Yeah. Well, ice cream wasn't cheaper, but they could learn to make ice cream cheap. You uh-huh. know how much it cost them to take a correspondence course? Oh, that's where the connection is. Okay. Yeah, a $5 correspondence course on ice cream making from Penn State University. That's, that's where it began. That's funny. And so began their rocky road to success. Oh, honey, you're so clever. I had to put that in there. <laughs> there are certain words in languages of the world, Bob, that have no translation in the U.S. And one of my favorites is a Portuguese word called pesa mentiero. Hmm. And it's Portuguese. And want to guess what it stands for? Pesa mentiero. Yeah. Pesa mentiero. <laughs> I don't have any idea. Well... You know what a wedding crasher is, right? There's mm-hmm. a whole movie dedicated to that. But what about a word to describe people who crash funerals? Yes, the Portuguese have a word for that. <laughs> Apparently they have a need for a word it for that. It is. It translates literally to a, a condolence person, but it refers to someone who goes to funerals just for the food. <laughs> oh, God. That's as low as it gets, isn't that is it? That is low. That is low. Really so. low. Yeah. Pesa mentiero. Yeah. Okay, more food questions. I got another one here for you. Why are chef's hats so tall? Well, that's a good question. Is that just pretentiousness? No, there's a function. What is in the kitchen besides food? Uh, hot fans. fans. Heat. Heat. Heat, heat, heat is rises. in the kitchen. 
Okay. And, <laughs> and so is that why the hats are tall? Well, it doesn't make sense. Y- yes, it does. It does. Well, so the hats are tall because... The unique shape lets air circulate around the chef's scalp, which keeps his or her head cool. Is that right? Yeah, that's why they were designed that way. That's why they are used. All right, what world-famous chef was once a spy? This is one of your favorite people. You used to do impressions of this person. Oh, oh I do know this because I, I saw uh, the movie about... Julia Child. Just add a little wine, it just burns away. <laughs> what, what burns away? Her so, hat? Her chef's hat? No, the wine. Oh, okay. Just put it in your sauce. She put it in everything, God bless her. Yeah, before she attended the Cordon Bleu and mastered uh, French cooking, Julia Child did intelligence work for the United States Office of Strategic Services. She was in India and China during World War II. I think that's where she met her husband. Yeah, it is. It is exactly where she met him. Okay, Bob. What U.S. state is closest to Africa? Oh, this is a... It's Maine, isn't oh, it? Oh, for God's sake. Well, I'm sorry. I read this. How did we do this? How did, You got so many of my obscure ones today. <laughs> just brilliant. I just know these oh, okay. odd things. Have we been reading the same things? Probably. Okay. And but isn't that interesting? So, so basically... The, the point is that if you look at a globe of the earth, you'll find that Maine hangs out farther than any other state, farther than Florida. The Quoty Head Peninsula is part of Maine, and it's within 3,154 miles of El Badouza, Africa. That's the closest direct line between yeah. our continent yeah, yeah. and Africa. Yeah. Fascinating. The two are divided by the northern part of the Atlantic Ocean and not much else. So if you ever want to say that you're close to visiting Africa, you just go up to the Quoty Head Peninsula. We can see it from our house in Quoty. <laughs> in the Pine Tree State. Okay. Okay, another treat question. Okay. What famous cookie was named after a Massachusetts town? A famous cookie was named after a Massachusetts uh, town. It's uh, got the name of a town in its name. Boston cream pie? N- no. <laughs> but you're in the right area. I'm in Boston. The uh, What else is in It's Bo- a town near Boston. Aha, uh-huh. Cambridge. Cambridge cookies. No. no. <laughs> what, Bob? Fig Newton. That's the name of a town? Newton is. Newton, oh. Massachusetts. Well, See, back in 1891, there was an inventor, James Henry Mitchell, and he came up with a machine that could inject fillings into hollow cookie crusts. And then there was a company in Boston, the Kennedy Biscuit Works, bought one of those, Uh and they had a line of cookies for different towns around Boston. They had the Brighton and the Beacon Hill cookies, and they added this one. They thought, well, let's make the Newton cookie, and let's fill it with jam. So they filled it with all kinds of different jams, and the one that was the most popular was fig so it became known as the Fig Newton because they had other kinds of Newtons. But those all went away, and, and that proved to be the most popular cookie of theirs. And, of course, that uh, cookie went on to uh, other management or ownership years later. I think at one time Nabisco had it. But Fig Newton, that's how it began. It was the name of a town in Massachusetts. All right. Why should the music world know who Tom Wiggins was? <laughs> Can you say that? Tom, Tom Wiggins. Wiggins was. Tom Wiggins was? No, it's Tom. Oh, Tom Wiggins. <laughs> Yeah. Why should the music world know who Tom Wiggins was, <laughs> indicating he's dead? Oh, yeah, he's way dead. Okay, Tom Wiggins. Hmm. Everybody would know him as Tom Wiggins? Well, back then, yeah. When are we talking? Back A- when? 1800s. Late 1800s? Yeah. What did he do, and, Marsh? And what, what is Tom Wiggins? He was the world's first pop singer. Oh, really? He was born into slavery in oh, 1849. My. 
Tom Wiggins was blind and autistic, but he had a special gift. Whenever the slave master's daughter played the piano, Wiggins could recreate the song by ear. He also had an uncanny ability to memorize tune after he just played them once. By the age of eight, he had a humongous repertoire and began touring, selling out shows to packed audiences. By the time he was 10, he became the first black musician to perform at the White House. Wow. By his teenage years, he was touring the whole globe and was composing sophisticated works of classical music. And this was before records then, right? Yeah. That's why we don't know his name. Yeah, and by the turn of the 20th century then, and we're going to the turn, he was a household name, and it makes him one of the world's first musical pop stars. Tom Wiggins. Yeah. Born where? Georgia, in slavery. That's amazing. Yeah. He, so he was a well-known person at the yeah, end of the 19th knew him, century. and he was blind and autistic and black and a former slave. Wow. Well, you know, that's there were people like that in early entertainment that were came from obscure places but were world famous. Yeah. That had, no, totally forgotten now because yeah. they didn't have movies around to take yeah. pictures of him and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a great one. That's a great question. Tom Wiggins was the world's first pop star. Correct. All right. Okay, Marsha, this is one more question on food for today. When a Minnesota flower maker won an international exhibition in 1880, it it did two things. One, it changed the name of its product. What was the second thing it did? Now, I'll give you a hint. It changed the name of its product to reflect the name of the award it won. The gold medal. Gold medal, yes. The Washburn Crosby Company in Minnesota They won a gold medal for their flower in an international exhibition. They changed the name of the product to Gold Medal Flower, which we've all heard of. Uh But they did another thing, too. Women started writing in saying they wanted baking advice and how to use the flower and all of this. What happened then? What did the company do? It made a decision. They they made a recipe book. They made a cookbook. That's not the answer, but you're along the same lines. Okay. They created a lot of desserts with flour in them. They created a character. Oh, the Pillsbury Doughboy? No, no, you had that one last week. That was in the 20th century. Yeah. They created... I don't know. A woman? Betty Crocker. Betty Crocker, yeah. Oh, she wasn't real? I'm sorry, didn't mean to... Oh, don't cry. It's okay. She had an apron and everything, and they just made her up. Yes, they did, because they got an avalanche of mail from housewives. They requested recipes, asking for advice, and management said, you know, we should have responses go back from a woman. Yeah, So they invented Betty Crocker. Brilliant. They took Betty, because that was a nickname for Elizabeth at the time, Betty, and then they chose the name Crocker, because that was honoring a former director of the company. And Betty Crocker is still a mascot for the brand. In fact, Betty Crocker, there are Betty Crocker foods now, not just recipes and things like that. But that all came about because back in 1880, this company won an award. I thought she was real, and then I thought they just killed her off and updated the picture. But it's cool to see her change her looks over the years on those Betty Crocker books. It is amazing when you think of it as an advertising icon that takes on contemporary dress of the person. And you look back, you can see it changing mm-hmm. as the dress and mores of the she got thinner society. Too. Yeah. And, you know, look at her from the 50s on. It's like, oh, there's our mother when they were younger. Yeah. You know, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, that was so cool. Okay, Bob, well, here's a lovely quote that goes out to our children, Chelsea and Benjamin, and it's from the Disney movie, The House at Pooh's Corner. It's Christopher Robin talking to Winnie the Pooh, and you're going to have to read it because I'll cry. Okay, I can see why it's hard to read. If ever there is a tomorrow when we're not together, there's something you must always remember. You are braver than you believe, 
stronger than you feel, and smarter than you think. But the most important thing is, even if we are apart, I will always be with you. Okay. <laughs> That's uh, yes. so sweet. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> All right. And we want to remind you, if you'd like to contribute to the show, we'd love to get your question so I can just pose it to Marsha and make her look like, uh, or make she can make me look like. Well, you made me look foolish today. You knew a lot of my questions. Congratulations. <laughs> I guess I'll be sleeping alone tonight. Okay, there goes the sofa. That's it for today. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we return with The The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.